you are about to see one of the most important videos about a Muslim woman who's at the frontier of challenging Islam in the United States and worldwide. And she happens to be a Wall Street Journal journalist who covered South Asia and a very good friend of Daniel Pearl who got murdered. And she was right there when that happened and part of the investigation. And she's the one who uncovered it and it transformed her life. And she turned into a rebel against radical Islam out there openly defying and she's my guest. In our Muslim community, everyone knows that there is an extremist interpretation of right. the faith. Everybody knows this and it's uh, something that very few people challenge. They have a psychology as something that an FBI agent has called a wound collector psychology. They are wound collectors. So they are people who live with a psychology of grievance that has no statute of limitations. There is no healing for their wounds. Their wounds live, they breathe in them com completely um, open. And how do they then manage that wound? With the world view of revenge. So they externalize their anger towards someone else. Yes. They need someone else. Yeah. And what do they need to do that? And that's that second part, the ideology. The ideology that says, respond to your wound with revenge, anger, violence. Because there's a higher power that yes. authorizing it. Yes. The higher power is authorizing it. Yes. You're supposed to do it. Right. And, and you're doing the right thing. You'll be rewarded for it. Yeah. Kashmir. Danny was there with me when... We were reporting about the Kashmiri militant groups. These men in their profiles, you can't even imagine. It became part of the alphabet soup. They belonged to Lashkari Taiba, then they belonged to Harkatul Mujahideen, then they belonged to Lashkari Jangvi. You know, it was like from one business card, they might as well just cross it out. So there was a, a machine, there was an industry. Like Danny and I were both business reporters, right? That's that's what our worldview is to look at everything like a business. And there was a business that was supported by both state actors and non-state actors for this, this big, big business of what I call Jihad Incorporated. That was when I was reborn, you could say, because this interpretation of Islam, this ideology, these men acting in the name of Islam had slain my friend. They had two weapons. One was the camera to make this video and the second was a knife. And with the knife they slayed Danny's neck and they did this ritual that we do to animals, you know, that the guard said that they slayed Danny and then they washed the floor. This compound floor, scrubbed it, and then they laid their janamas, their prayer rugs, toward Mecca to sanction their divine act, right? Wow. Yeah. That's... Mm. Namaste, viewers. Today, I have with me somebody who is publicly known as a counter uh, to the radical Islam, a woman from a Muslim community born in India, 
in a Muslim family living in the United States and courageously taking on her own tradition, which actually takes a lot of courage, not only intellectual honesty, but also audacity. And she's now, she's been a professor at Georgetown. Uh, she's written for the Wall Street Journal, for the Washington Post, been on many mainstream media like Bill Maher. And here is Asra Nomani. Namaste. How Namaste. are you? Well, you know, wonderful to have you here. And uh, it's been a while since we've exchanged messages back and forth and wanted to do this. And finally, here we are. I'm so happy. I'm so happy to be here in your home. I, you've created a vision for the world, and I'm so happy to be a part of it. And, and you are a very important part of it. Uh, you know, I, I want to, my vision has always been to uh, discover for myself and share with other people and uh, compare with other people like you who are discoverers. And so we discover and learn from each other. Yeah. And, and that process we share with other people. So that's this what, is... That's what I learned is that we're all scientists, you know, whether we have the degree or not. And we go, we experiment, we try to learn and we bring back our findings. We collect the data and we come to conclusions that you've been wonderful at predicting what will come to us in the future. And that's what we have to do in order to create the future that we want, isn't it? So there's several things about you that are interesting and you put them all together, it's a very unusual package. So, I mean, you're a Muslim woman uh, who is not, who hasn't rejected her tradition and gotten out of it, right. but who's very critical of it in a world dominated by men yeah. and orthodoxy. Uh, here you are very open and you're not just, I have a lot of uh, Muslim friends from the Indian subcontinent in the United States who say some of the things you say, but in private. Oh, interesting. And then, and oh. then they'll say, but don't quote me on this oh. or I'll give you some very important information, by the way, but you didn't hear it from me. Right. Whereas you're very straight. Yeah. You're in the face, you've written about it. So this is very unusual and we'll get into how you became this way. Were you always like this? Was there an influence in your family? Right. Was there a particular incident? What happened? Yeah. Because I think this will be very fascinating. Yeah. So let's get started. Yeah. So your your parents are both Muslim? Both Muslim. And and are they Sunni Shiites? So we come from Sunni interpretation, okay. yeah. And so uh, what was the uh, upbringing in terms of Islam? Was they, were they very orthodox? Were they, how were they? So my mother came from a family that is very conservative. And so my mother wore the full face niqab or burqa, some people call it. And so she wore it through her college years. And then her life story changes because one day she went to the girls' college that she attended and she dared to take her veil off, just among the women, but the driver ratted her out to the family and they said, oh, that's Sajida, she's so, such a rebel, we have to get her married off. So then they picked my father, his name is Zafar Nomani, and, um, and she was arranged to him. And as you know, from that time, they didn't meet each other until after they had been married. And she arrived at the train station in Hyderabad and there my daddy greeted her. And my daddy was a feminist. She was a woman. Our family comes from the Azamgarh district in Uttar Pradesh. And my daddy had taken her burqa off in the 1950s. So she traveled then in the 1960s without covering. 
And she saw my mother with full burqa and she took my mother's burqa off. Now my mother would have liked to have taken it off herself, you know, but my mom had uh, upbringing in Catholic school and she had um, gotten a sense of critical thinking, you know, and my father became a But in a Catholic scientist. school, did she wear the burqa? No, she didn't. It was a girl's school. Yeah, it was a girl's school and she didn't wear it there, no. They, so she had a, a, a life in a Catholic school during the day yeah. and a, an Orthodox Muslim family at home. Yes, yes. And, you know, what that created in her was questions, right? It, it exposed her to another reality, another ethos. Being able she, to step out of yourself. Yeah. And yeah. Look back, yeah. And that's the everybody's journey, right? That's been your journey. That's been my journey. My father... You know, he survived the Bengal famine of 1943. He uh, told me the story of getting the grains of sorghum wheat that the Americans sent as aid. And what was remarkable is that these were both two people who lived through the British rule and they chose America, right? They chose a future that was could have some people by today's lens think of it as like, the symbol of the oppressor, right? But what my dad saw in America was what you probably saw, just opportunity and... So then you came to the United States. Tell us then what happens here. Well, I came with not a word of English, like so many young children that come to the U.S. I didn't even recognize my mother. I didn't recognize my father. It had been two years. It was a new life, a new language. My daddy, like, I don't know if this is a trick that has been played in your family too, but she lied on my passport so that I would be one year older. I was four, but she knew that I could start kindergarten at the age of five. So she made me five when I arrived. They might throw you out. <laughs> I know, exactly. For, for, for uh, whatever, what do they call it? Uh, Immigration fraud, right? Immigration fraud. Right, I know. But here I am, um, a U.S. citizen, because this is the country that we chose. And it was not easy at the beginning. So then where, where did you arrive in the U.S. and tell us about your life, how you grew up? I arrived in this town called Piscataway, New Jersey. My father was a Ph.D. student at Rutgers. In what field? In um, clinical nutrition. Okay. Yeah, he had studied agriculture at Osmania University, and then he came here for his Ph.D., my mother became a working woman. She be earned money babysitting, babysitting And children. your father went into academics. He did, yeah. And he became a professor. He did. So what's really interesting from that time, it's late 1960s, and this becomes really important to my own inquiries. My father was one of the first Muslims in this community, one of the first from India, and now we have so many in New Jersey but he helped to start the Muslim Students Association. He helped to start the first mosque and Friday prayer. But we grew up there and we grew up like a lot of immigrant families in poverty. I had the free breakfast that children get in the U.S. when they can't afford meals. So you didn't have a traditional Muslim education because you were in this country. There were no, hardly any other Muslims. And in terms of family influence, both your parents were very liberal. They were, they were liberal, but they were religious. And so I learned prayer. Most of our education is at home anyway. So my mother taught me prayer. My, um, my mother taught me to read the Quran. And you just were yes. living as a Muslim and not a big deal outside. Yes, it was 
ideas that we would get. We would get taught from the first chapter of the Quran that you stay on the straight path. You know, simple ideas like this, ideas of both religion and culture. Uh, you know, the idea, live, have sabr, right? Every mother tells the child, have sabr, have patience. You know, these kind of values that are both religious and also cultural because in religion you find messages of how you live your life, by what values, honesty, truth, uh, hard work. And so those were the messages that I was raised with. And then tell us how your change, how your transformation occurred vis-a-vis -vis your posture towards Islam into the way it is now. Well, I brought you this illustration. Um, I, I don't know if you know the New Jersey state seal. Do you know the seal? Um, okay. This I, is. I haven't noticed it. But exactly okay. right. I grew up in this uh, state, right? Learning what are the two values here? Liberty and prosperity. Yeah. So it's a really interesting. I was pulling this out as I was thinking about talking to you because this was one of my assignments, and you'll see the terrible grade I got on the back. 89%. 89%. That's like almost a failing grade for an immigrant child from India, right? Seventh grade, okay. I know. So this, right. this is, this is I, I just look at this symbol because, you know, liberty and prosperity, those are some values that I was taught that America provides. But what I started seeing in my upbringing was something new arriving. And what that was, was a new interpretation of Islam that was very different than what my parents had taught me. New, new interpretation of Islam yeah. started coming here. Yes. When? In my childhood then. So the key year for this evolution is 1979. Okay. So if you do the math, you think I'm 14 by then. Okay, my, by my real. That's the Iranian revolution. Yes. Yeah. In 1979. Right. And then while the Iranian revolution happens, there's meanwhile this siege on Mecca that m many people don't know about, but it became a, a red flag for the Saudi government. They were afraid that, oh, maybe we are going to be overthrown. And so they concurrently, the Shias in Iran and the Sunnis in Saudi Arabia, they start radicalizing and they get money right? Because that's when we have all this petroleum dollars. And they end up getting so much money that they build these propaganda machines. And these propaganda machines not only proselytize with sermons, but they start sending their Quranic translations out into the world. They start sending their students with their ideology to communities. You know, what's so interesting is that my dad and an Egyptian friend of his, Mahmoud Daher, they said here in New Jersey, they said, we are not going to accept any foreign money when we build our mosque here. So that was a really, really important, decisive choice that they made. Then my dad, we all moved to Morgantown, West Virginia, and my dad helps to start the first mosque there. First, they rent space in a law office, then they go to the United Methodist Church. But you know what happens? The men all go, but my mom and I didn't get to go. I would question my mother and I would say, why, do, why does my brother get to go everywhere? A girl's 
woman's place and a woman's place, you know, in our family. Education was important, but then it, oftentimes it didn't mean employment later, you know, after right. marriage. So that's what I would see. I would see those contradictions because I saw my girl cousin so brilliant, so intelligent and wise, and they would become educated, but then after marriage, they wouldn't have a profession. And I would ask my mom about that. And then back in Morgantown, it's America, <clears throat> right? So you think we're going to be immune from those contradictions. But then in America, what I saw as a girl was those ideas of segregation were being practiced. And, um, and I'll tell you one. Segregation one of genders. Yes. Within the Islamic community here. Yeah. So one case that was really impactful for me was uh, soon after we had moved to Morgantown, I went to a Diwali function and it was wonderful. It was fun. We ran. I wrote in my journal. I said, we ran in the hallway. We were competing and doing relay races and having a grand old time. And then the next night I went to an Eid function in my Muslim community and I went into the same building, it was the student housing building. And now this time the men guided us and told us that we had to go up into one of those efficiency apartments for the graduate students. And so I wrote in my journal that it felt like a prison because there all the women and girls were and all the food that the mothers had cooked, the men got and we got just plates of food left at the, on the floor and then the men would knock and then run away. So my brother, again, had a grand old time that night, but I wrote in my journal that it was wrong, you know, that, that this kind of inequity so was So one unfair. of the influences was that you influenced, you felt that things were unfair towards women. Yes. That was one influence. Girls, really, towards, right? Towards girls, yeah. yeah. And, and then what happened? And then I, I did what a lot of people do, and this is why I understand you know, the friends that you talked about earlier. Like, I had these thoughts and I kept them to myself. I wrote them into my journal. I would question my mother and she would have great conversations with me, but I didn't ever write a word about it. I didn't say a word. So I lived my life. I lived my private life as a Muslim. And then I ended up falling in love with journalism. Which In which college were you? So because of the traditional you know, ethos that I grew up with. My dad said, you stay home for undergraduate and you can go away for graduate school. So I stayed in West Virginia University and it was a blessing because I knew this town. It's a town of about 40,000 people. And then with the students, it becomes another, back then, about another 20,000. So not a lot of people. Rolling hills, it's tucked into the uh, Appalachian Mountains. It's sort of like um, Himachal Pradesh. When I went to Himachal Pradesh many years later, I felt like I was in Morgantown. It's, um, a, it's a small town and I knew it inside out. So I became the investigative reporter. And I started working at the college newspaper, the Daily Athenaeum, before I even took a class. And that's what I should have gotten a degree in newspapering, but I ended up with a, you know, a degree that I, I called it the football player degree because I was taking every kind of course because like a journalist, I enjoyed everything. And I had a liberal arts degree, but the, the best thing I did was I wrote 
two, three, four articles a week. And, um, and I asked questions, you know, I, I, my big investigative project one year was I learned that my friend Vasia Daliani from Greece, an international student, was being paid less than the American-born students in the cafeteria as food workers. And I wrote an article and I exposed this injustice and I got the pay raise up. So how does all this translate into taking on the Islamic orthodoxy? It when does that happen? Me. I think it prepared me because what happens, I think, in most of our lives is we get a worldview. You know, we, we get our personality. And I applied it for the first 30 years of my life in journalism. Uh, in, I went to, got a job at the Wall Street Journal and covered air, airline industry, travel industry, international trade. So I learned how to ask questions and how to do great reporting. Then, like a lot of Muslims, like most of the world, I had this terrible wake-up call on 9-11, on September 11, So till 9-11, you were an Orthodox, a, a conventional Muslim woman, uh, knowing your place in society and not challenging it, but challenging somewhat as, an, as a journalist. Yeah, I think I was probably unorthodox, but I was definitely not challenging anything publicly at, okay. at all. Till 9-11? Yes. Okay, so that's the turning point? Yes. Or, or something else later? No, 9-11 got me on an airplane to Pakistan and I went to do reporting. Oh, you went, so for whom? I was on book leave. I had been doing a book on the philosophy of Tantra and I had been going through the temples and uh, monasteries of India for the last year on a book leave. And I went for this publication called Salon Magazine and so I went there to investigate how this extremist interpretation of Islam had become so powerful that it caused so much death. So you, who were you working for at that time? I was working for the Wall Street Journal, but I was on leave then. Okay, so yeah. you, your regular articles for Wall Street Journal were on what? Were on, on, on travel, on okay. international trade. Yeah. Okay, okay. So you were, you were a journalist for the Wall Street Journal. Right. And after 9-11, they sent you to Pakistan. I went with this other magazine, Salon Magazine. Salon Magazine, yeah. okay, okay, okay. But what I was able to do with Salon was write more uh, narrative stories, more profiles of people. And what I was trying to get at was how this, this ethos had happened, you know, that had allowed these men to think that they were doing God's work in the hijacking and killing of so many innocent people. You know, half of my family lives in India and half lives in Pakistan. They moved not after partition, but some years, some decades later. Mother's side or father's side? My, both sides. Both sides, some of them moved there. Yes. And so I, I, and I knew, you know, that's the thing. In our Muslim community, everyone knows that there is an extremist interpretation right. of the faith. Everybody knows this, and it's uh, something that very few people challenged back then. My father challenged it. He didn't want to accept money from Saudi. Well, not just their own challenge, but they don't even publicly talk about it. Right, maybe. right. 
Exactly. They don't debate it. They, they And they might even be in denial. Oh, completely. Because when, when somebody raises the issue, they'll right. protect it. Right. Right? Yeah. And they save face and they, they circle the wagons, like whichever metaphor you want. But I wanted to explore this. I knew it existed. And I said, now, okay, I'm going to examine this. So I went, I interviewed uh, the Taliban deputy ambassador. He's now a uh, chief official at the new Taliban government in Afghanistan. He waited in Doha, you know, during the war America had in Afghanistan. Now he's back in Afghanistan. So I went, I interviewed him, I interviewed people about the psychology, I interviewed psychiatrists about is it helplessness, is it hopelessness. In Pakistan, in Pakistan. Yeah. And you you published these in the Wall Street Journal. In Salon Magazine. In Salon Magazine. Yeah. But the fateful day came on this day, January 23, 2002. So I had fallen in love with somebody in Pakistan because here in New Jersey, I grew up in the 60s and 70s, and there's this patch that they had from the 60s revolution that said, make love, not war. So somehow I took it seriously and I fell in love with the Pakistani Muslim. I thought he was a you know, modern guy that fit my personality. Well, this was in Pakistan. Yeah, in Karachi, Karachi. in Karachi. So I got a house. I rented a home on Zamzama Boulevard. In Karachi. Yeah. And I thought there I was also going to finish my book on Tantra and write my great novel. You know, I had big dreams. It was my first home in sub, the subcontinent. And so I was so excited to. And away from your parents. Home. Yes, exactly. And the relatives, you know, and I was able to live my own life. I thought that it was my. Um, you know, my feminism and my, my, um, my every, every, I thought everything had just finally come together, you know, in a way that I was self-expressed. And then on January 23rd, the, my entire world exploded. Uh, my, I have a dear friend from the Wall Street Journal named Daniel Pearl. And so Danny was in Pakistan too with his wife, Marianne. And you knew them? Yes, he had been my friend for nine years. He had been my friend from our days together working in the Washington, D.C. Bureau. Hmm. Yeah, a, a great person. A famous person, fam the way he died, yeah. Famous in the way he died, which is not how I hope people remember him. But right. I, I will just tell you that, Rajiv Ji, you'll understand, I was trying that little girl to um, understand America, you know, with Nancy Drew, my father going to the mosque, but I'm not allowed to go. I didn't get to go to my prom because of these conservative, you know, values. And I met Danny when I was 28. I uh, told him that I had never gotten to go to my prom. And he said, we're going to fix that. And so I, at the age of 28, then I threw my first party in America. Yeah. And we called it Midsummer Night's Prom. And so I had my prom finally. Good. Yeah. So this was just an, a, a beautiful so human being. So he was being. a friend, not just a professional colleague. Oh, yes. He was a great friend. He you know, enjoyed this. He, he said to me one day um, from Peshawar, he's in Peshawar, you know, it's like... So he was in Pakistan quite a lot. He was, yeah. He, he came after 9-11, just okay. like I did. And so then here it is a few months later, but he emailed me one day. He's like, I know there's a war going on in 
Pakistan and Afghanistan, but can I still look for a husband for you? You know, so he was always just a jovial guy, very fun loving. And, um, and, you know, he arrived, I, I, um, I brought with me, you know, this, um, one of his last emails, he got a tip. He got a tip that there was this attack that was, that this man had tried to do of lighting a shoe. I don't really know if you remember this. Shoe bomber. Yeah, the shoe bomber, Richard Reed. So Danny got a tip that the shoe bomber had met with a sheikh, Jelani, in Pakistan. And so Danny was on the chase, trying to get an interview with Sheikh Jelani. And so he arrived at my house on January 22nd, 2002, because he got the interview. I didn't know any of the details. And to this day, I, I wish I had asked him more questions. But on January 23rd, my housekeeper went down the road and got a car for Danny, a taxi. And outside my house, then his wife and I stood and there's beautiful parrots. I don't know if you've heard that family of parrots, you know, as they fly overhead. and. They were just singing up a storm. It was so sunny. I, I'll never forget the, the heat. And I waved goodbye to Danny and I said, see you later, buddy. Because uh, that night we were going to have... His wife was there. His wife was beside me, yeah. And, um, and I was so happy that night. I was going to introduce him to all my new friends in Pakistan, you know, my boyfriend and all this, all these cool people. I, was, I wanted to show him, I'm one of the cool kids now, Danny. Like, I have all these friends. And, and he never came back. He, he didn't come back. Ma Marianne made this chili dinner, Cuban chili dinner, and Danny didn't come back. And, and, and you know how it is in that in our in the subcontinent like people don't stay out so late you know and they come home at a reasonable hour they have dinner and you had arranged a taxi was it a taxi or a private car it was it was a taxi and i didn't know then of course you know i had tried to get the private car from the sheraton but then they they were booked you know and i was felt like the um the bad host then you know because i wanted everything to be perfect for danny and his wife and you know and she was a few months pregnant then so you know so how he never we came are. back. He never came back. And then what happened? You uh, you you got the U.S. embassy involved, probably. Yes, it was my first phone call. Um, we waited. We, I, you know, what the first thing I did. Danny didn't password protect his computer. It was two thousand two. I went into his laptop and I sat and I looked. And can I tell you, I knew immediately when I saw the email from the man who had set up the interview. How could you tell? So guess what? His email address was nobadmashi at hotmail.com. So I said, nobadmashi, really? I've watched enough Bollywood movies, you know? This guy's playing some head games. So this guy, nobadmashi, yeah. had uh, told Daniel Pearl yeah. that he's going to arrange this interview with... Yes. Somebody yes. which would help him in this uh, new, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal article. Right. That's what was going on. Exactly. And this guy, Danny had met with him and he was normal. And so Danny kept, I could see in the emails, the guy said, oh, well, maybe we'll do the meeting in 
Islamabad. Oh, no, the Sheikh, he can't come to Islamabad. Can you come to Karachi? And then that's how he got Danny to come to Karachi. And what I, Danny didn't know, what I didn't know, was that he had laid the plan then for the last two days, for the last two days before, he had been going to all the Badmashis in Karachi and finding the driver. It wasn't the taxi driver. What happened is Danny went to a restaurant and there they had a pickup car get him for the interview. The driver, the, the guards that then held Danny in captivity. So they're all really radical terrorists pretending to be a driver, yes. guard. Yes. The whole thing was a setup. It was all a setup. And some people asked, they said, did they target Danny? But it wasn't that. It was really that Danny was a target of opportunity because Danny had, had been calling around trying to find this. They just wanted somebody like yes, that. Yes. And he was the one looking around and yes, so they caught him. Yes. And who was it that caught him? Do you remember? Who? It was this man named Omar Sheikh. He was the one of the high-value prisoners that India had sadly released. Because of that uh, airplane yes. hijacking. Yes. In, in, in order to uh, uh, negotiate with the, as part of negotiating with the yes. hijackers, they had released him. Yes, and uh, uh, along with Masood Azhar. And so it, one of the Indian government officials told me that on the last day of the last month of the last year of the last century, India made one of the worst decisions by releasing these men. And of course, they were in a tough position because they were trying to release the passengers that were on this hijacked airplane. But unfortunately, then this guy was named Omar Sheikh. And Omar Sheikh went from India's prison, Tihar prison, to freedom. And he got freedom in Pakistan. He got freedom to roam around. And do you know he even got married? He got married the year before. And he even had a little baby. And still, he was so mad for jihad that he organized this kidnapping of this target that was convenient, a white American. And then what we learned in the next days was that they also used Danny's religion as their excuse. Jewish. Because Danny is Jewish, yeah. And Danny then, when they first discovered he was Jewish, then, of course, the connection to Israel emerges. And Danny's ancestors had been founders of Israel. And the notes from the kidnappers went from claiming that Danny was a spy for the CIA to claiming he was a spy for Mossad, the Israeli intelligence agency. And do you know that I didn't? I never even knew what this thing called raw is, the research analysis wing. The Indian CIA, yeah. yeah. I had no idea. I never, never even heard of it. But how do they enter this? How do they enter it? Dun, da, da. You are looking at a supposed raw agent, yeah. So they called you? Yeah. And did what? They put yeah. it in the newspaper. They said that I was a raw agent. Who did? The Pakistani newspaper. Oh, the I see. Journalists. So the Pakistani newspaper started saying who, that. And who was it? Of course, it was the intelligence agency planting this story. ISI. Yeah. 
And why were they planting the story? Because what we learned, I have brought here too, I, I have binder after binder. This is the binder on Ahmed Umar Sheikh. This is his police report. You'll see on the first page the actual police report. On so Omar. why would he do this? He was the guy who was, so he had a personal jihad. Right. That's it. No. Or was he working for someone else? No. He, his personal jihad was part now of the global jihad. And that's what I learned. This was a man, a young man, who was throwing away his life for the jihad. His father had actually settled his family in London. And do you know Omar Sheikh? got acceptance. He was a student at London School of Economics. He had the ticket to a great future. But then during the radicalization in mosques in the UK, like it was happening in the US, he became captive. Okay, so now here I want to ask you, yeah. why would uh, normal people, well-educated from good families with a good career, like in his case, radicalized to something so illogical and so stupid and why would what is i mean you you must have talked thought about it for decades now yes what is what is what is your analysis of this why does this happen because it happens a lot yes and i not only analyzed it but i reported it you know the nancy drew in me i had to know every single part of this young man's life and not only his life but every single man fazal kareem he was one of the guards you know uh this guy arif he was a guide every single one of them i had to know what is it that happened and it's two things i identify one is they have a psychology as something that an FBI agent has called a wound collector psychology. They are wound collectors. So they are people who live with a psychology of grievance that has no statute of limitations. There is no healing for their wounds. Their wounds live, they breathe in them com completely um, open. And how do they then manage that wound with the world view of revenge. So they externalize their anger towards someone else. Yes. They need someone else. Yeah. And what do they need to do that? And that's that second part, the ideology. The ideology that says, respond to your wound with revenge, anger, Because violence. there's a higher power that yes. authorizing it. Yes. The higher power is authorizing it. Yes. You're supposed to do it. Right. And, and you're doing the right thing, you'll be rewarded for it. Yeah. And, and why did I not fall for it? I didn't fall for it because when I was growing up, my dad, who had, he had a wound, right? He lived through the Bengal famine. He lived through British colonial rule. My mother had a wound. She had the trauma of her father's death, right, at a young age. She too lived through British rule, but their response was the healthy response. S improve yourself, and then serve humanity. That's what they taught me. That was the Islam that they taught me also. Those were the principles within Islam. But these guys, I, 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 I studied them. I studied their movements, their mosque. When did they go to which mosque? When, how long, how, how, how did they decide to stay in that mosque? And, and it became really 
like people say sometimes, like a cult, right? Because it is, you, they support each other, they stoke each other. And then unfortunately, you have a larger ideology in the world. What was happening at that time? There was the, uh, you know, wound never healed of Israel and its founding, right? And who kept stoking it? All of these governments, you know, for their own political purpose, that they were going to bring justice for Palestinians, but never actually bring justice. Kashmir. Danny was there with me when we were reporting about the Kashmiri militant groups. These men in their profiles, you can't even imagine. It became part of the alphabet soup. They belonged to Lashkari Taiba, then they belonged to Harkatul Mujahideen, then they belonged to Lashkari Jangvi. You know, it was like from one business card, they might as well just cross it out. So there was a, a machine, there was an industry. Like Danny and I were, were both business reporters, right? That's, that's what our worldview is to look at everything like a business. And there was a business that was supported by both state actors and non-state actors for this this big big business of what I call Jihad Incorporated. And that's, that is, I can't, it's so sad to me because Danny wouldn't even go to Afghanistan because he said he was about to become a father, you know, and he said, I'm anxious to go to Afghanistan, but I'm not anxious to die. That was one of his last emails to me. And he came to Karachi because he thought it was safe enough, you know, but for these men, this was their playground. But you don't think there was anything higher than these people doing it on their own? Well, I know that they are state-supported. You know, these are men who are state-supported. State as in the ISI? The ISI. And we have to be clear that it's obviously, at that time, General Musharraf was in power and he was playing his game. If everybody remembers back to 2000, 2001, you know, one day General Musharraf says that he's shutting down the militant groups. And then the next day, Danny did the story. He went to this town called Bawalpur in Punjab. And Danny said his, his article was open for business because he went knocking on the doors of Lashkri Taiba, Harkutul Mujahideen, and they were all living free. They were doing what they do, raising money, training guys, sending them on the bus you know, to go to the border as close as they could go, Musafarabad and these other places, Rawalpindi, and then go across the border if they could. So the um, denial that the government of Pakistan has constantly been putting forward that, that it has not engaged in these cross-border incursions is, of course, an open secret, right? So, so when this it. story broke, Eventually, it did. Uh, who killed Daniel Pearl? Yes. It took many, how long was it? How many days did it take before you could uncover all this? We didn't know for um, five weeks. Five weeks it took us. And then, how did you, how were they able to put all the pieces together as to what exactly had happened? Well, somebody you know, had photographed, right? So, what we had were photographs of Danny from the first few days, and they're, they're called sign of life photos. Um, this is one of the photos. So, were they? Were the captors taking these pictures yes. to get money? They didn't want money. You know what they wanted? They wanted, talk about grievance culture. Do you remember, it's 2002. I don't know if you remember this, 
but Pakistan was still complaining about the fact that they hadn't gotten delivery of these F-16 fighter jets. Right, right. Right? Because they built something called a nuclear bomb. Right. So, right? So they wanted those F-16s, even though by then it was like past F-16 time, right? It was a few generations later. Then Guantanamo Bay had opened. They wanted the prisoners in Guantanamo Bay exchanged. And, um, and you know what they called themselves? They called themselves the, um, the, or the Organization for National Sovereignty of Pakistan. So interesting because they were in the politics of nationalism, right? And, um, and what they were trying to push was this idea that they wanted Pakistan to be independent of the U.S. interests, right? Well, we never got a phone call. So that's how we know that like, they weren't actual kidnappers. We never got a phone call. One time, Demanding a rev- right, ransom or exactly. something. Exactly. One time I did answer my phone. Oh my gosh, like my heart just almost stopped because it was from Danny's phone. And it was one of these guards. And they, they got confused. They didn't know what they were doing. And they put a call out, but then they hung up on me. And I was so sad because I thought maybe, you know, it was a chance to find Danny. But we tried in that little, that house that I had rented, you know, that I thought was going to be the great American novel, it became a safe house for Marianne and me. And it became our command center at my dining table. We had every piece of evidence up on the map. I put the social network analysis. Who had Danny seen? What, when did he see them? And uh, fifth week then, the... FBI agents that were there, the Pakistani police, they all disappeared. And I was confused. I I didn't know where they were because they were always around and we could contact them at any minute. I called one, I called the next, Randall Bennett, this Pakistani police officer, captain, nobody answered their phone. And then all of a sudden they were at my door, you know, those beautiful heavy wooden doors at the homes of South Asia. And I was so proud of it when I showed Danny because I, I thought, oh, I found a villa, you know, I'm, I'm so happy to have him visit. And, um, and you know, I, and Danny loved music. So I had gone to the bazaar and got every bootlegged CD that I could find of the music that he liked. But it was the Pakistani counterterrorism officer. We called him Captain because he had been an officer in the Pakistani military. And he turned to Marianne, who was beside me, and he said, I'm sorry, I couldn't bring your Danny home. And that was the moment that we knew that they told us. And um, I saw men who had lost all sign of life in their faces because they had all worked with their hearts and souls because Danny had that face, you know, this smile that everybody fell in love with when they saw him. And, you know, that was when I was reborn, you could say, because this interpretation of Islam, this ideology, these men acting in the name of Islam had slain my friend. And and I didn't believe them. You know, I asked the council general, I said, John Bauman, I said, how do you know how, how do you know for real that it's not edited video? And he said... What was the video? Yes, so there was a video. That's what it was, is there was a video. And it was a video of Danny's murder. 
they said. And I said, how do you know? It had been made by the captors. Yeah. And I said, how do you know it's true? And he said, because they arrived, they had two weapons. One was the camera to make this video, and the second was a knife. And with the knife, they slayed Danny's neck. And they did this ritual that we do to animals, you know. And what they did is they put their finger so you could see the pulsating mm. of the jugular vein of the blood. And I remember to this day, you know, it was a house not much like this, beautiful um, bookcases around. And I remember just uh, my entire life changed in that moment because I saw the truth, you know, of this type of extremism and how it expresses itself in this world. It's like I stared into this abyss and saw, you know, the, the, the pools of blood that they left on the floor and then washed. They made the video to show that they have done this. Yes. And not only that, they had a message and they used Danny for that message. Um, I brought one of these, um, one of my books is, um, this book is um, I Am Jewish. And this book has, you can see Danny's face. And then in it is the images of many Jewish writers who contribute their essays about what it means to be Jewish because those were three of Danny's last words. They had him say on the video camera, you know, they had him look into the camera. The poor guy, he looked in the camera and he said, I am Jewish, my mother is Jewish, my father is Jewish. You know, like testifying to the world. And, and they probably that, said, if you do this, we'll let, we'll let you off. He didn't know. Yeah, he didn't know. He didn't because, know. you know, when you are in that situation, right. you just obey because you, you, you think that if you obey, right. they'll stop beating you or they'll stop uh, some of this stuff. Yeah. And you know what he did too? They didn't know it, but he declared to the world in those last minutes about his grandfather. And he said, my grandfather helped to create this town named B'nai Brak in Israel, and there is a, t a street named for him, Heim Pearl Street. And so he, he owned it, you know? Danny, and I was on this journey at that time, exploring Hinduism and Buddhism and Tantra, and looking at it as a philosophy. I had been going through the temples and the monasteries, met the Dalai Lama on the banks of the Ganges River, um, in, at the Maha Mela, I had tried to get Danny to come there, but he was vacationing in Goa at the time. And so he got to have his time in Goa. I had been traveling the subcontinent, trying to understand our purpose on this earth and how is it that we should live to live a fully realized life. And when I saw the video, which I saw then, later, I saw that Danny, he did that exercise that so many of us are constantly doing, is that trying to do in our lives, like he transcended himself, but yet was within himself. And 
it was such a beautiful lesson for me because they took from him his body. You know, those men that walked into that room, it wasn't enough for them to cut his head. They cut him into pieces then. Mm. So they said they tried to take from him his body, right? Every part of his body, but they couldn't steal from him his self, you know, and his own history, his identity, his ancestry. And there's no evidence that he struggled. There's no, he didn't. He didn't. I, the, every evidence that I got, I uh, did not interview the guards themselves, but I read all the police reports. I, that's the project that I did. Did they catch the guards? They caught the guards. and Who had done the killing? They, they, they caught the guards who held Danny, but they did not catch the men who actually killed Danny. How did they catch the guards? Well, they one of the police officers is a name by the name of Fazal Kareem, and he caught this guard on a, another charge, and he did that interrogation like they do in Pakistan, and he was hanging. He, he was hanging from a, a hook, perhaps, and he was being interrogated, and he confessed to, he was trying to get out of this interrogation, and then he said he had this information about the remains of Danny, because for months we didn't know where Danny had been held or where his body's remains were. And so this guard confessed and led the police officer, Fazal Karim, to this compound. And then that guard was became one of the testimonials about those last moments for Danny. And one of the stories that I learned that made me realize we had to fight as Muslims against this interpretation of Islam was that the guard said that they slayed Danny and then they washed the floor. This compound floor, scrubbed it, and then they laid their janamas, their prayer rugs, toward Mecca to sanction their divine act, right? Wow. Yeah. That's, mm. that's the mandate that they think that they have from the heavens. And so that's why I knew coming out of that experience, I had to fight them in this world against that ideology because that ideology got in the heads of 20, 20 men who then used it to steal life from a beautiful human being. Yes. And that should never be allowed. Mm. So then what happened? Then, of course, the rest is a huge tragedy, a lot of documentaries here, a lot of... Uh, News coverage, Pakistan covered it up and saying it's not our fault, right. we just, somebody did it, right? Yeah, what we discovered later was that Omar Sheikh had laid this plot and that the man who took over the cap the captivity of Danny was this man by the name of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who now sits in Guantanamo Bay as the mastermind of the 9-11 attacks. So he had been living <clears throat> very, he'd been living very happily in Karachi under protection. And so we learned that. And then um, I learned in those weeks, 
it became very personal then this battle because I, I as my, my niece says, I brought a souvenir back from Pakistan because I learned that I was pregnant. Ah. Yeah. So I had fallen in love and I thought I was going to marry this man. But the minute that the police officers came knocking on the door, he ran because he was afraid of the and so ISI. so he never came back to you? No. And he just disappeared. He didn't fully disappeared. He played games with me, you know. He, he played... wanted to have one thing and another thing and not be committed. Yeah. And also he got pressure to report on what we were doing. So he became a source for the Pakistani intelligence. He would come to my house. I would go to the rooftop to be able to speak privately with him. When I had to tell him, you know, and I told him I was pregnant, I learned that I was pregnant in the fourth week. Um, you know, I was not going to do it in the house because the house was probably bugged. So I went to the rooftop and, but he was never, never took responsibility. But the beautiful parents that I have, those parents that brought me to America, I told my mother, I didn't have the courage to tell my father. And my mother told my father and my father sent me just one email short three words and it just said I love you and in that he opened his arms for me this baby within me and I arrived back in America with this gift from the heavens right this divine gift but I lived with shame because as you know no matter what community you're in it's still considered taboo in so many communities to have a baby without a wedding ring. And I lived with that shame. But, you know, it was my mother. My mother, this beautiful woman who'd grown, gone to Catholic school, had her burqa taken off, came to America to be a babysitter and raise me then. She looked at me and she's like, Astra, you don't live in a village somewhere. You know, you live in America. Stop. She t just told me, she just did like a strong mother does. And she said, stop living with shame. And, uh, and she refused. You know, that's the greatest gift. I mean, that's the gift that I want to tell everybody that you, we can give each other in friendship, in family, in marriage, that unconditional love. You know, we're going to have fights. We're going to have differences. But... We need that unconditional love. And I got it from my parents in this most painful of times when the worst interpretation of Islam had been used by these men to murder my friend. And then another awful interpretation of Islam called me a criminal for being a mother without a wedding ring. I, I kept it a secret in Pakistan because there, there, it is Sharia law that if you are pregnant without marriage, you're illegal. That's a big violation for them. Yeah, big hadud. So, how law. long were you in Pakistan I st we stayed, after Daniel, uh, Daniel's murder? We stayed just about a week then. We left because I was pregnant. After the matter was closed. Yeah. After Daniel Pearl's matter was closed. Yes, yeah. And I came back um, to America after staying in France with Marianne. I got to see her baby safely into the world. 
and I felt like you know the word fars. It is my duty. It was my duty to my friend. He he left his wife pregnant in my home, and it was my duty to see that little baby. Both of you were pregnant. Yeah, she knew it. You did at the time. Yeah, just yeah. unbelievable. So uh, after this, have you kept in touch with Daniel Pearl's family? Yes, I. I'm best friends with Danny's father. I told Danny's father, you know, I think it's your job now to find me a husband. <laughs> so he has that job on his shoulders. Where does he live? He lives in California and he's brilliant, you know. He and he's the one who helped me also because can you imagine his wife and he are, have the unimaginable and then I come back to America. I have my baby. I name my baby Shibli. Uh, Shibli is the name of an ancestor from uh, the turn of the 20th century who created a college named Shibli College in Azamgarh district, in our home district. And he fought the British and he was a reformer for that time. And, but Shibli means my lion cub. <laughs> yeah. And then I gave him, I gave Shibli the middle name of Daniil which is a Arabic version of Daniel. So if people know their Bible stories, there's a story of, of uh, Daniel and the lion. And in that story, the idea is that Daniel is on trial and the lion may eat him, but he doesn't have fear. And he says, God is the judge. And so that was what I wanted to raise my son with that idea that God is the judge. God is a loving expression if we allow it, right? And I do not want my son for one second to inherit the shame that I had felt during his pregnancy because that shame meant depression, sadness, self-loathing, you know, all of the worst parts of a psychology that can express themselves. But because of love, I was able to have my son. And, you know, when I saw him, I looked at his face and I, I thought, wait, I swallowed so many tears during his, the pregnancy. I thought for sure he would have scars on his beautiful, but there he was so perfect. And I thought, this is a new chance. You know, I, I have a choice. This is where we make our choices, right? Are we going to live as wound collectors, grievance that has to be, um, you know, responded to with shame, maybe internalized shame or anger? Yeah. So that is your story. That's how you decided to go after radical Islam because of this huge trauma that yeah. you experienced. Yeah, and I wanted to respond to it not with war, you know, of weapons and bullets, but with the war of ideas. Say, we have So now to... we'll continue this in a series. We're going to do a mini-series together. Yes. And this is the first part where this is the birth of a, uh, what do you want to call yourself, a Muslim revolutionary, reformer? Yes. Reformer? Yes, we call ourselves reformers. Reformers. And... A Muslim reformer. This is the story of the Daniel Pearl, which is a very famous... Uh, episode that happened, very tragic episode, the murder by some jihadis in Pakistan. And she's the person right in the center of this whole story and how it changes her life. So that's, the, this, this will be the 
end of our first part. Thank you so much. And then we'll continue in the next part. It's so nice to be able to talk to you about it because you understand so deeply the pain and also the struggle to try to find truth in our subcontinent and then fight for that truth. So I can't wait to talk to you about that fight for truth. We will begin. We will come back with that. Thank you. Thank you.